The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening, I'm Scott Wapner. On day 157 of the coronavirus crisis, we start with breaking news tonight. A stunning rebuke against the President of the United States. The former Defense Secretary, General James Mattis, picked by the President himself to lead the Pentagon, issued this statement just a short time ago. I'll quote from it now. Donald Trump, says General Mattis, is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us. We are witnessing the consequences of three years of this deliberate effort. We are witnessing the consequences of three years without mature leadership, says the general. We can unite without him, drawing on the strengths inherent in our civil society. We bring in now Mike Santoli and CNBC contributor Ron Insana to react to all of this. Mike, we are not a political program. Everybody knows that. But we do understand the intersection of politics and Wall Street, and everybody knows that as well. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, because this, Mike, is a stock market that has rallied so far from the lows. It has looked past the coronavirus. It has looked past the civil unrest in our cities. It has not entertained in any way, shape or form to this point the election and the re-election prospects of Donald Trump. And I wonder at what point does that change? It's very difficult to say, Scott, as you suggest. I think the threshold is pretty high for political policy issues, social unrest, a lot of the things in the air uh, to really penetrate the day to day of what the market is attempting to price in right here in trying to handicap an economic recovery at some level at the margin when you, as you, as you suggest, when the market's up 40 percent in 51 trading days, as it has been, uh, yes, perhaps, in fact, it becomes more sensitive to these things. I would point out, though, when it comes to the electoral implications of everything that's going on, uh, if you look at the betting markets, you know, Joe Biden's chances have improved in the past couple of weeks relative to President Trump's. And yet the market has been rallying alongside that. I don't think that's a causal issue. But the point being, those two things are coexisting right now. So it's not clear to me that the market feels a swing factor right now is exactly how this election plays out. But perhaps at some point it is going to matter. Ron, maybe the market's been preoccupied and deservedly so. But at what point does the market and do investors start to focus on November? Well, I think, Scott, they may very well. I mean, this is the first very high-level former cabinet official to speak so bluntly about President Trump. And and he's effectively suggesting we might be in or heading towards a constitutional crisis. Now, you'll recall the individual who wrote the book Anonymous said he would make himself known before the November election, the same individual who a year prior had written an anonymous piece in the New York Times telling Americans that they had our back inside the White House. If we were to see more and more foreign former cabinet officials come forward, if we were to see 
an ex-Republican president, for instance, endorsed Joe Biden. Uh, and there have been some calls for that of late. And you've heard uh, or read columns by George Will, by Bill Kristol and others suggesting not only do they want to see the president go, they want to see the Senate go Democratic. And so if you were to see that kind of sweep where the House, the Senate and the White House all go to Democrats, you'd have to be thinking about some subsequent policy change. And that may be uh, adversely um, dealt with on Wall Street. Now, whether or not a, a President Biden and an all-Democratic Congress would move to raise taxes with a weak economy is an open question. But, but that calculus, I think, as of tonight, may, may play a slightly heavier hand than it has in the past. Mike, Vice President Biden has already suggested that the corporate tax rate, if nothing else, should be higher than, than where it is now. And let's make no mistake, I mean, the president's economic policies, the current president's economic policies, have been a stimulant for stocks. That's undeniable. The yes. S&P 500 is up 26 percent since Inauguration Day, factoring in COVID and factoring in what we're witnessing today uh, in our cities. It could look far different under a President Biden. It could, although I don't know that the market would necessarily be alarmed in a big and lasting way by, for example, corporate tax rates going back up into the vicinity where they sat for many years before this phase. Because guess what? The market has just dealt with what could end up being a, a 40 percent drop in corporate earnings this year without necessarily feeling as if it changes the long term investment story. So it's very difficult to know what the market wants or if, in fact, it even knows what it wants going into an election. Keep in mind, in 2016, the market traded as if it preferred Hillary Clinton to win the election up until Election Day and Election Night. And then it it reversed on that. I will say one thing. There are ways to hedge against future volatility. And if you look at the price of that insurance against future volatility, there is a decided pronounced increase in the cost of it around the election. So clearly traders are maneuvering for the idea that it potentially could be a close and unpredictable election, and therefore there could be surprises involved. So it's not as if the market's oblivious to that. It just hasn't really made it uh, the, the single key focus at the moment. I'm wondering, Ron, in general, what you think of what we're calling this great disconnect that we have. We are almost unabated marching back from the March 23rd lows towards new highs in the stock market at a time when there is such great pain on Main Street, more than 30 million Americans are out of work. We have protests going on, mostly peaceful uh, in our country, over the killing of, of Mr. Floyd and the issues that that all represents that we're, we're attempting to deal with. And yet the stock market has had blinders towards all of it. Why the disconnect? Well, I'm not sure there is one, Scott. And, and, and I know people feel this way. And, and again, I mean, it, it feels almost like a moral judgment on the stock market for it's not recognizing the current reality, although we had a 37% peak to trough drawdown intraday on the S&P 500, the fastest and deepest bear market we've seen is certainly in modern history, and then a subsequent recovery that I think you know, is best explained in a couple of ways. One, the surge in domestic liquidity from the Federal Reserve and the fiscal relief package from the federal government. Two, the surge in global liquidity uh, in all manners around the world from central banks and from federal governments. When you match up the behavior of equity markets worldwide, they are moving in lockstep with the surge in global liquidity. Two, it's the maybe farthest look the market has ever taken, in my experience, across a valley, uh, believing that the bridge that's being supplied by central banks and federal governments will be enough 
to get these economies back on track. So they're forgiving 2020, they're not worried about 2021, and they're pricing in 2022. And then I think beyond that even, the market has differentiated between the long-term winners and losers. We've seen the stocks that have won that are facing and benefiting from compositional changes in the economy, and so they've won and led the market higher. And then we've seen those that have been punished in, in, in the meanest possible ways, including bankruptcy, that simply can't survive this experience either without a massive restructuring or a complete liquidation. So I think the market reflects reality reasonably well as we understand it without making a judgment on these other issues that have would otherwise, I think, affect markets if there had been a policy mistake as opposed to policy support. Gentlemen, we will leave it there. A very busy night of news, an interesting and developing story nonetheless. Mike Santoli, Ron and Sana, our thanks to you both tonight. Now to Las Vegas, where casinos are set to reopen in just a matter of hours months after being shut down. But the casino industry does face many new challenges tonight. Our Contessa Brewer is following the money in Las Vegas for us. Hi, Contessa. Hi there, Scott. Yeah, casinos were prepared to roll out the highly sanitized red carpet for tomorrow's big reopening. Instead, this week has seen protests down the Las Vegas Strip and civil unrest that has prompted tourism officials to yank a TV ad campaign that was supposed to air in markets within driving distance of Las Vegas. In spite of that and coronavirus concerns, Mark Bath, for one, is driving from the L.A. area with his wife and daughter for a three-day weekend at Wynn Las Vegas. We're going to be hanging out at the pool along with, you know, going to the sports book, to, you know, with Belmont opening up, going to, you know, bet some horses and, and just enjoy, you know, the city. Tell me about how coronavirus factors into your plans about what's safe and what are you willing to do versus what feels dangerous to you? It's about driving right now for us. We're not comfortable getting on a plane. But the thing that made us you know, feel comfortable about going there is they're checking temperatures, they're wearing masks. And guests themselves will undergo temperature checks. They'll be shuttled off for additional screenings or COVID tests, or even be sent to quarantine hotels should that need arise. Bellagio fountains will resume at 9.30 local time tomorrow. Casinos have staggered their reopening times, though some will open up right after midnight. They've put up the plexiglass. They're breaking out the sanitizer, both for hands and for chips. Because the demand, Scott, is there. So many reservations, in fact, that MGM and Caesars both decided to reopen a third resort on the Strip, and they have pushed up reopenings of other properties. But they're watching closely tonight, hoping that any demonstrations in Las Vegas remain calm. We will see how it all unfolds. Contessa, our thanks to you. That's Contessa Brewer with us tonight with the very latest. With us now to discuss the casino reopening plans for Nevada is Sandra Morgan. She's Nevada Gaming Control Board Chairwoman and the Executive Director. Chairwoman Morgan, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me this morning. We're only hours away. How is this all going to work out? You know, I'm really optimistic that things are going to go well. We are scheduled to open some of our properties in about eight hours. And I know that they've taken tremendous steps to ensure compliance with the health and safety plans and guidelines that the board set forth over the last month. Um, we did tweak some after a long workshop with health and public safety officials um, a week ago, just really kind of going through the process as to what would happen if there would be a guest that potentially fell ill on their property and the ability to provide them with a COVID test and potentially isolate only if needed. Um, but the licensees, our gaming licensees, have definitely um, 
actually stood up to the call that we've um, submitted, ensured enhanced cleaning and disinfecting uh, measures for all their properties, and of course, enhanced and proper training for all their employees as well. How will we deal with uh, a guest who maybe uh, falls Ill, Ill or, or doesn't feel well? Well, um, and this is really kudos to our Southern Nevada Health District and uh, Clark County and their fire department and emergency management team. But they've actually, uh, well, well, the board actually in- included in our plans and our policies, either to ensure that every hotel guest has a temperature check, they're doing a self-symptom assessment, or that those properties, the larger properties, actually have a medical professional on site, whether it be an EMT, a nurse, or a physician. And so that will be the first round of checks. But if someone does fall ill, and they will, they will have the opportunity to take a COVID test. If they do end up being positive, it will be up to the property. And they have, have delineated this in their plan to let them actually isolate in the hotel room. But if they're unable to either drive or fly home, then the county has identified resources where someone could actually stay in a non-gaming hotel and be able to isolate there until they're better or until they're tested again and um, have a COVID negative. COVID. What, what role did the casinos play in all of this? I know there was some level of criticism that the commission left it up to the casinos to sort of formulate a plan. And then the commission came in and had its own uh, set of rules that needed to be met as well. How did that all work out? Well, I don't, I would actually disagree with that characterization. So we have two um, policy boards in, in the state of Nevada. We have the Gaming Control Board, and I'm the chair of that. We are the law enforcement, the investigatory, the audit, the 24-hour, um, 24-7 uh, board. We have a commission uh, that is part-time, and they actually ratified our first draft of the health and safety policies. And I worked very closely with the health district, not only in southern Nevada, but in northern Nevada for our Reno and Washoe County markets as well, and worked with infectious disease specialists actually adopt the plan that we initially adopted on May 1st. And the Gaming Commission then ratified that plan unanimously one week after that. Of course, during that process, we were communicating with licensees. You've seen several gaming licensees that have decided to publish their health and safety plans. And they, of course, worked with their own medical experts as well. Uh, What happened last week when Governor Sisolak actually issued his um, additional directives, opening us to phase two, specifically giving the the Gaming Control Board the enforcement ability to enforce these health and safety policies underneath his emergency directive. And so, yes, we worked with a lot of stakeholders, not only employees, um, health professionals, and the industry, but um, the Gaming Control Board did uh, draft those policies and actually adopted them. And and if I pull that slot handle, there's going to be somebody else coming behind me uh, with with sanitizer to to clean it up for the next uh, guest? I think you're going to see a mixture of things. You'll definitely see hand sanitizers, and some licensees have actually included hand-washing stations in their casino floor. You'll see when people check in, they may get a hospitality package that includes a mask and hand sanitizer and other ways to disinfect um, as they kind of traverse the casino floor. So you'll see a a bunch of different options, I think, uh, depending on which property you go to. Chair Morgan, I appreciate your time. Wish you well. Exciting time in Las Vegas. All right, we'll talk to you again soon. Let's bring in now the CNBC contributor, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former FDA commissioner, of course. Dr. Gottlieb, good to see you. A big night, as we said, just a few hours away. A morning in Las Vegas, of course, in a city that really never sleeps, just like New York City. Uh, the challenges of all this, how, how, are you, how should we feel about going to a casino uh, or a hotel property? Well, it wouldn't be at the top of my list. Um, I think crowding a lot of people into indoor settings is higher risk right now, and doing it for purely recreational purposes um, isn't a top priority. And so if you're thinking about what to prioritize in terms of reopening, reopening a casino wouldn't be at the top end of the list. Now, I understand how important these casinos are to the Nevada economy, so obviously they prioritize them differently than another city or state would. 
But uh, it's a higher risk setting. Anything done indoors, in groups, in crowds, with a diverse crowd is higher risk. Let's talk about the risk. You know, we've seen these protests uh, in many cities around the country. How concerned are you about a spread of the virus in those communities, among those crowds, and that leading to a spike in cases that otherwise may not have existed? Well, you're certainly going to see um, cases come out of these mass gatherings, but we have a lot of spread, notwithstanding these protests that we've seen over the last week. Um, Florida recorded 1,300 cases, the largest single daily toll since April 15th. Um, Arizona recorded 1,000 hospitalizations yesterday. They have a uh, surge in cases underway. We see rising cases in Tennessee, North Carolina, um, Arkansas, South Carolina. Georgia is recording a higher number of cases. We see cases going up and hospitalizations going up. Texas and Houston, we see rising hospitalizations there. So there's a lot of parts of the country that have a lot of infection right now where we see cases going up. And it's not just cases going up because testing's going up. We see hospitalizations going up as well. Um, And so there's a lot of infection all over the place. And if we continue on this current path and we have this burn of infection through the summer and we sort of hobble through the summer with a high rate of infection, that sets up a lot of risk for the fall. Even if we don't get a full-blown epidemic this summer and we just kind of stay on our current trajectory, where we see rising cases throughout the summer while we stay at current levels. That's a lot of infection around the country. There's 20,000 infections a day right now. They're getting diagnosed. That's probably 200,000 infections because we're only diagnosing one in 10 cases probably. Um, so that's a lot of people still getting sick from this. Wow, those are big numbers. Um, there's news tonight, and let's talk about a vaccine. Let's try and advance this story if we could. There is news tonight that the Trump administration has selected five vaccine candidates as finalists. Your reaction to that news? Well, look, I think that this is proceeding rapidly, the development of these vaccines and the major pharmaceutical companies are all in this game. All the companies with vaccine programs are now in this market and they've been able to advance these programs very quickly, really at historic speed. And that's very encouraging. I think in terms of the five selections the administration made, they chose three vaccines that are based on on vectors, viral vector platforms, two adenoviral vector platforms, and then a platform from Merck that they use for the, their Ebola vaccine using Indiana, what we call Indiana virus, a different virus that largely affects um, cattle. And then two mRNA approaches where they're using mRNA, the genetic material from the virus, to deliver the sequence for the protein that, co- that is the spike protein that you want to develop antibodies against. And Pfizer is one of those entrants with an mRNA approach. I'm on the board of Pfizer. I think if I was trying to round that out, I would have tried to reach for some older technology to that mix. So these are relatively new platforms. There's never been a vaccine developed with an mRNA platform. The only vaccine that's been developed with a vector, viral vector platform of this nature is an Ebola vaccine that Merck developed with the same platform they're using here. I might have tried to throw into that mix protein-based vaccines like what Sanofi's working on or Novavax is working on. That's older technology or older styles of approaches, even though they're predicated on newer platforms. The idea of delivering just the protein to a patient's an older approach, and so it's de-risked in some respects. And so if you're trying to round out your bets, um, you make some bets on some of the more novel technology that perhaps can deliver better immunity, but you also might bet on a couple of older style uh, approaches as well. Are you afraid we're missing an opportunity by not doing that? And do you have any reason why we wouldn't be? I don't know why we're not. Um, I think it would have been prudent to include in the mix uh, some of those more tried and true approaches. Now, it could be that those um, vaccines weren't judged to be far enough along to be in this first tranche. 
Now, judging from the outside, it would appear that Sanofi and Novavax are equidistant to some of the five that were selected, but it's hard to tell. If you look at what the Chinese are doing, they're using very old-style approaches to their vaccines. They're using an activated virus, and that's likely to be less immunogenic. It's likely to induce a less robust immune response, but they could perhaps get to market sooner with those older approaches. And if your goal is to get shots in arms in time for the fall epidemic, and we might have an epidemic in the fall, and that's what we have to guard against, the Chinese might beat us there with their vaccines by taking a more tried-and-true approach. And even a vaccine that's partially protective might be sufficient at staving off the worst outcomes if we do have widespread virus in the fall, which is a risk. It's not a, not a, short, a short conclusion, but it's a risk. Yeah, it's one thing to have a vaccine. It's another thing to have it widely adopted by our population. We have an exclusive CNBC poll, Dr. Gottlieb, that says only 38 percent say they'd definitely get a covid vaccine. Does, does that surprise you? Uh, and does it concern you? No, it's it's consistent with what we see with other vaccines. About 30 percent of people get the shingles vaccine. About 45 percent who are eligible get the flu vaccine. Um, and those are at the high end. So a lot of vaccines are less than that. Pediatric vaccines are higher only because they're mandatory um, to enter into school. If we can get about 40 percent of the population vaccinated for covid, that's probably enough, because by the time we get these vaccines to market, probably at least 15 to 20 percent of the population will have had COVID. Right now, it's probably about 5 percent. But the doubling time for this epidemic is every 50 or 60 days. And so by the end of September, probably 15 percent of the population will have had this virus if we just continue on our our current trajectory all through the summer. And so you couple 15 percent of the population that's had the virus or 20 percent with a 40 percent vaccination rate, that gets you to enough immunity in the population to probably hold back certainly an epidemic and wide propagation. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I'm glad you put that into uh, perspective for us tonight. I do have some tweets for you, uh, if we could. It's a popular segment, and I want to make sure we get to it. The first one, using a scale, Dr. Gottlieb, a, a 1 to 10, 10 being extremely safe. How safe is air travel this summer? If you take proper precautions, and I've been talking to some of the airlines about what they've been doing, I think if you take proper precautions, I'd put it in the middle. Um, I'd fly if I had to. I wouldn't be looking to take extra trips. But if I had to fly, I would. I'd wear a mask. I'd use generous hand sanitizer. I'd stay in my seat. Um, I wouldn't take anything from the flight attendant. I think you just need to be careful. And you need to also be mindful of the entire journey. It's not just the flight that creates the risk. All right. Next question. I know many married people that were quarantined together for weeks One spouse got the virus where the other didn't. How do we understand that? And this is actually supported by the data as well. When you look at clusters of infection and household infections, not everyone in the household gets infected. We've seen that repeatedly. A lot of people have some cross immunity to COVID because of other recent coronavirus infections. There does seem to be some coronaviruses that induce cell-based immunity that seems partially protective against coronavirus. So there are people that have some innate immunity to this virus because of other infections that they've had. Try and squeeze another one in. It's been reported in Italy that their strain of COVID has weakened. How likely is this and does it affect the chances that the U.S. strain has possibly weakened as well? Unlikely. This data hasn't held up to scrutiny, and I don't think you'd see drift of this nature in such a short period of time. Dr. Gottlieb, appreciate it as always. We'll see you soon. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb once again joining us tonight. Up next tonight, the role of the world of sports in times of crisis. Before the break, though, what images of our country look like on this Wednesday night.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Many pro sports franchises have responded to the killing of George Floyd and the broader issue of race in this country. Some, however, have not, raising the question of what role these businesses should play at a time like this. Bill Roden is writer at large for The Undefeated, the author of the book $40 Million Slaves, The Rise, Fall and Redemption of the Black Athlete. Also tonight back with us is Dr. Americus Reed from the Wharton School. Gentlemen, it's so good to have you. Thank you. Great Great Bill, uh, I'll begin with you. I'm a, a longtime reader and big fan of your work, so it's a pleasure to have you on our, our program tonight. Um, my, my question would be that the majority of, of teams, as I said, have released a statement or at least said something publicly. Some, however, have not. And I'm wondering what you think the role of sports should be and these businesses should be in our society today on issues like we're dealing with now and whether every team has an obligation to say or do something. Yeah, you know, I, I don't care whether they release a statement or not. I mean, I, I'm personally beyond the, the point of words now. And let me just say this. I'm so happy. I'm really so happy now that uh, we don't have games. You know, we don't have NBA playoffs. We don't have Major League Baseball, um, you, you know, because we need to do exactly what we're doing as a nation. We need to really focus now. Um, focus is probably we've never had before. A lot of people who probably never thought twice about uh, racism. And, and, and by the way, that's our problem. Racism, the problem is racism. But I think that what we're seeing now without sports to, to divert our attention is sort of the raw, cold brutality of racism, privilege, inequality. Uh, and, it's, and it's not just here. It's, it's, it's uh, globally. So um, I don't really care who says something, what teams don't, what teams do. They're going to have to answer because most of those franchises run on the, 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 the bodies of young black men, and they're going to have to answer to them. It's, it's speaking of that, and Dr. Reed, that's where I want to turn to you. I, I, I bring up the example of the owner of the New York Knicks, Jim Dolan, who put out a statement as to why they weren't going to put out a statement. And some other teams have punted on the issue uh, a, a, as well. I spoke with another NBA owner today who told me, frankly, my players want to hear from me at a time like this. They want to have a dialogue on how we can make substantive changes so that we can fix the issue that that we're talking about. What do you make of the teams that haven't said or haven't done? And the example that I read to you tonight of MSG and Mr. Dolan. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I am extremely disappointed in the statement by Mr. Dolan. I think punting away the ball and basically saying that we're not really qualified to talk about giving an opinion about a tragedy that's going on in the, in the black community right now is one of the most egregious kinds of, of statements, wishy-washy, very uh, unproductive uh, statement you could ever imagine, especially tying it in back to what Bill said about the fact that 
your entire business model is built on these African-American athletes or a large portion of them being on your team and coming from these impoverished environments. So to say that we're not qualified to speak on this is a slap in the face. It's an insult and a massive mistake. And so what I would say is I agree with Bill. The talking should be over, but there should be some talking as a bridge to say, hey, you know what? We need to be sick of this. We need to actually start making movement change, tangible, concrete kinds of things. And we can't sit on the sidelines, so to speak, to use a sports pun. We have to take a stance and we have to be very clear and, and unambiguous about what that stance is. Yeah. And, 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 and you know, just uh, Dolan is a huge support. I'm not surprised at all. I mean, Dolan is a huge supporter of the president. So, A, I'm not surprised that. Then, on the other hand, you know, Dolan has his top executives, uh, his top executives in his corporation for a long time were African-American. So he's got this, and that, that, that's what racism is, this sort of uh, undefined duality where you could be racist over here, but yet uh, as you, you got a black business model and uh, some of your top executives are are African-American. But I just think that, you know, I was listening to the program, and I think that what we face is much larger than the owners. We, we face this despiritualization in our country. Why is it that the market, the markets are roaring, right? The markets are roaring in the midst of uh, this horrible sea of misery, of unbelievable um, unemployment, of uh, un unbelievable deaths. But yet, the market is roaring. I just think that that has become the major problem in our country, that money has become the highest value. And I think that's what we have to grapple with. We have to find our soul. We have to find this American soul. So I think, that, I mean, it's a lot to say in the two minutes, but we've, we've got, we've got some big, we have some big moral issues to wrestle Believe with. Believe me, we, we're tackling the issue, issue of this disconnect uh, between Wall Street and, and what you would say the real world perhaps is uh, on an everyday basis. And I should also note, Dr. Reed, that there are owners who are stepping up and stepping out. Uh, David Tepper, for example, the owner of the Carolina Panthers, they're the second franchise in the NFL to release a statement only after the Minnesota Vikings did. And it's my understanding that he met with the Players Impact Committee, or at least they were consulted for certain in the way that their statement was was put out. So there was a sort of collective nature in all this. I'm also wondering, Dr. Reed, how you think organizations themselves will view now their players taking a stand on social issues and, and taking a more activist role. And whereas some organizations criticized or were uncomfortable with players kneeling, for example, during the national anthem in, in the NFL, may take a different road because of the events we're all witnessing today. I agree 100 percent, Scott. I think that the new world order, as I'm calling it, uh, is telling us now, dictating to us that, you know, we can't sit on the sidelines. We can't no, we can no longer be silent. We have to participate in the solution. And I think smart owners, I mean, they're billionaires, but I think smart owners, and they're not going to uh, criticize their colleagues, but they understand the mistake of not making a strong enough statement, especially with the talent that's in the locker room that's providing all of this, all of the value, if you will, uh, to these teams. And so they understand that we live in a world now where each of these individual players, Scott, are brands themselves. I'm a marketing guy. So they're on social media. So if the owners think they can stop these individual players from taking a stand and getting involved in these social issues, they're misguided. It's going to happen anyway. 
And so the, the, the question is, are you going to strategically create a, a, a groundswell or an opportunity to bring the players in and help you co-create the change that's possible here? And the smart owners are going to do that. They're going to create the community. They're going to create their team, their, their human talent to be part of the solution and not try to get them to be silent or try to be very wishy-washy with respect to taking a stance on these issues. Also, and, and lastly, Bill, I, I wonder about the athletes themselves, the employees, if you will, of, of these businesses. When, when the employees speak up in businesses that we cover here at CNBC every day, we cover those stories. They're celebrated voices for speaking out. And I'm wondering if the next time a LeBron James or somebody else of stature in sports stands up and says something, they're not told to shut up and dribble. Their opinions are more meaningful than maybe they've ever been before. Yeah, yeah, they, they've got a, a lot of power. It kind of gets back to those notion of $40 million slaves. Just because you have money doesn't mean you have power. You know, uh, I just want to talk about yeah, that but in the context of the hypocrisy of the owners. They can say anything, but they blackball Colin Kaepernick still. And frankly, when it's time for them to hire black people as their head coaches, uh, the league looks like a virtual plantation with all the black guys uh, uh, working and all the white guys from that point up, um, you know, uh, uh, being the brain trust. So, you, like I said, you know, we're beyond talking. It's deeds, not work. Hire these black guys as your head coaches. Hire them as vice presidents. Hire them as executives. I don't want to. Other, I don't want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I don't want to hear it. words. Uh, it's deeds, not words. Well, I did want to hear what you guys had to say on this topic tonight. We'll continue the conversation another time, I'm sure. It's been great having you both. Thank you so much, Bill Rode and Dr. Americus Reed. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Talk to both All of you right. again soon. We do have more breaking news from Washington tonight. Our Kayla Tausche following that for us joins us now on the news line. Kayla, what do you have for us? Scott, the Senate at this hour has just passed a bill that would significantly increase the flexibility of loans provided by the government to small businesses under what's called the Paycheck Protection Program. The changes in this bill would include extending the covered period of loan forgiveness to 24 weeks from eight weeks and also eliminating restrictions on how much of that money must be spent on payroll. The House of Representatives has already passed this bill. It will now head to President Trump's desk. We're awaiting news on when he will sign it. Scott? Busy night of news. Kayla, we appreciate it. Thanks so much, Kayla Tausche, for us tonight. There is much more ahead still on this CNBC special report. Making it in Silicon Valley isn't easy. But the numbers show it's even more challenging for African Americans. Meet a man who made it big time. When he shares his secrets of success, we're back in two minutes. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back. A long list of CEOs on CNBC again today talking about leadership in this difficult climate. You're seeing that uh, two things come together. One is the you know, long-held issues about opportunity and economic mobility and things that have produced that ha- just have to be solved faster in this country. And on the other side, you see a health care crisis that affects those communities in a ad- more adverse way than it's affecting the broader society. How do we seize this moment around the rapid transformation about the skills and the capabilities in the workplace? And how do we ensure that our educational system keeps up? And how do we use, frankly, some of the experience that we have and capabilities and influencing in Washington around that important agenda, because that's good for society. There's so many things going on, and I think it's up to our CEO community to be part of lifting that up. I mean, one of the big issues has been, it's all been black leaders historically talking about these issues, and it's time for for white leaders to, to stand up and, and really speak and encourage action. Business leaders have to start to lead. What has happened in the past, they've trailed. Citizens have been the ones who've taken to the streets and started to scream and started to scream about bad behaviors, either bad policing or bad policy. Businesses can actually be either partners with them and in, in the ideal sense, they could lead some of this discussion. They could become positive forces in the community. Those were some of our corporate leaders talking about diversity in America today on CNBC. One industry that has historically fallen short in African-American representation is tech. We're talking tonight with Charlie Moore. He's the founder and CEO of Rocket Lawyer. Charlie, welcome to our program. It's nice to have you. Thank you, Scott. It's great uh, to have you. And I hope you're healthy and everybody you care about is, too. I appreciate that so much. And I hope the same for, for you. How do we bridge the racial divide in Silicon Valley? Well, look, it, it all starts, uh, first of all, with uh, data. Look, we are uh, technologists. I happen to be a technologist and, a, and an inventor and a lawyer. So I'm going to combine data and facts uh, as a technology lawyer. And I'll tell you, the data and the facts point to bias. Uh, we, we all have bias, uh, conscious and unconscious. I think a lot of this has to do with unconscious bias. And number two, uh, the pipeline of talent. I, you've been talking about that. Uh, on CNBC today, and it's exactly right. Uh, The fact of the matter is, you know, I've been blessed with this Silicon Valley career and some success here, and I had a unique combination of, uh, a a unique educational combination, going to the U.S. Naval Academy, getting a liberal arts education that combines science, engineering, math with the humanities. We need a bigger pipeline of African-Americans and other uh, people of color and women who are trained in STEM, science technology, engineering, and math. And then we need to clear out those biases that make those of us who are qualified, uh, who, who do know what we're doing um, through, through a lot of hard knocks and experience and education from having to try to climb this ladder and scale businesses with, uh, with a weight uh, tied around us, which is this weight of bias that uh, we all need to do better at. You're, you're also talking about a, a lack of access now and what needs to be greatly improved is access to better education, access to better training and the skills that are going to prepare you to be able to make a move to Silicon Valley. I'm thinking of education from a standpoint of having access to the Stanfords and the Harvards and the Ivy Leagues and all of the feeder schools, if you will, to places like Silicon Valley. Yeah, and also historically black colleges. Uh, One of my great mentors, even though I was at Annapolis uh, and at the Naval Academy, 
was a, a wonderful professor at Howard University who took me under his wing named Adele Patton, Dr. Adele Patton. And he taught me a lot about how to write and he introduced me to jazz and things that made me uh, who I am today. So I wouldn't count out the historically black colleges as well. And I know that some uh, companies like Google have been working with uh, the uh, historically black colleges uh, to create a pipeline of talent and, and engineers. So uh, it's def while, while those elite universities are important and, uh, and, and a big part of where uh, talent has traditionally come from in places like Carnegie Mellon as well. Uh, there, there's a, I think uh, Silicon Valley really needs to broaden its lens and, uh, and, and, and grow talent in uh, maybe some places where uh, we, we've been underrepresented uh, historically this, as well. It's a great point that you make uh, and a point that's certainly well taken. What about your own story today? How, how have you been dealing with the, the shutdown? What's the state and status of your business today? Yeah, well, we, we, at, at Rocket Lawyer, uh, first, I'm just incredibly uh, proud of our team. Uh, we've had uh, incredible business continuity. We've been working from home since uh, late February. Uh, our main office is here where I am in San Francisco, but we actually have offices uh, in about six different places in the U.S., the U.K., Mexico, and Europe, and all of our offices are uh, are closed. People are working from home, and we're still serving our customers. Now, I understand a lot of businesses and a lot of our customers aren't in that situation, restaurant owners and construction businesses and, and so on, and uh, we've been helping them as well. Uh, I'll tell you, we created a, a, a resource. Just go to rocketlawyer.com and folks can access uh, attorneys, can get attorney advice if you need it, uh, all for free. And we did it as, as a public resource and lawyers are donating their time. So I hope that uh, people who are affected negatively, which we have not been as affected negatively as many of our customers, uh, will take advantage of that. You be well and we wish you well. We'll be following your story. Thank you so much, Scott. I appreciate it. All that. right. That's Charlie Moore tonight. Rocket Lawyer. Here's what else is coming up. Exclusive information from swing states on which way they think the economy is going. A key component of how voters will decide who to vote for in November, five months from now. And closing the business lit a fire underneath me. How business owners in one of those swing states are trying to right the ship and move forward. Their stories their words next before the break our world on day 157 of the coronavirus crisis The stock market surges despite the pandemic and protests, but in states of play, a new exclusive CNBC poll with our partners at Change Research surveying six swing states, 75 percent of voters view the economy as not so good or poor. That number is much higher for African-Americans. In swing states, white voters are split over the state of the economy. Only 22 percent of African-American voters feel confident. 
On returning to normal, most Republicans say we should be ready in six months or less. Democrats say we need more time. One of those key swing states, Pennsylvania, even before the protests, the pandemic was wreaking havoc on Main Street. Tonight, Andrea Day reports on three business owners in the Philadelphia neighborhood of Maniunk. Main Street Maniunk is in the city of Philadelphia and offers a lot of the virtues of a smaller community farther away from the city. It has been around for hundreds of years. Winnie's Maniunk, which is now only serving takeout, has been a community staple for years. I have lost a million dollars in revenue. I make all of my money in one part of the year to carry my staff and myself through until the following April 1st. At this point, I'm doing 5% of my sales that I would be doing. Down the street from Winnie's is shared office space company Kismet Cowork. This is a 13,000 square foot space that was an old pottery barn that we repurposed to make it into the shared office space and to focus on co-working. We lost about 65% of our revenues within the first two weeks of COVID-19. We decided not to go after the PPP dollars in the first round because we were just confused. We did learn a lot when the second round of PPP came through and we have brought some employees back. Steps Away is one of Main Street's boutique fitness clubs, Hot Box Yoga. It's been a a tough time closing the business. It lit a fire underneath me. Owner Eliakim Kim Farrick transferred all yoga classes online and didn't have to lay off any of her 30 employees. I was pretty surprised at how ready people were to practice online and um, willing to adapt to changes. I do tell my students, like, it's a lot like a very challenging yoga pose. It's hard to hold. It's testing your strength, but it's really just temporary. And as soon as it's over, you will be stronger in the end. It is uh, very concerning what the long-term future of not just our business, but also of Main Street Mania, of Philadelphia at large, whatever comes back, we want to be there and we want to be a big part of it. If I'll make it or if I won't, listen, I've had a really great ride in Mania. I really have. Andrea Day, CNBC. We're pulling for you, Manny Young. Recognizing American restaurants pushing through the crisis. That's next. Tonight, we salute the following restaurants in our nightly shout out. Bubba's 33 in Mesquite, Texas. The Maywa Restaurant in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Second Street Bakery in Jersey City, New Jersey. Barolo Grill in Salina, Kansas. And Ragazzi's in Garner, North Carolina. Appreciate everything you all are doing. Everybody be safe. Shark Tank is next. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.